in this episode of Boss Files. I don't think there's very many people today that start on the ground floor, work their way up, stay with the company, and then have the opportunity to be CEO. Heather Bresch, now the CEO of pharmaceutical giant Mylan, she started over two decades ago by literally typing labels in the factory basement. How she broke through the old boys club and became the first woman to run a major pharmaceutical company. Her advice, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Plus, she's the daughter of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, and she doesn't hold back when it comes to her assessment of Washington today. Here's what I'll say about Congress. They're not very solution-oriented. I mean, I've never seen a time in our country that was less solution-oriented, where it's too partisan, it's everyone, you know, grabbing the headline. She also weighs in on the EpiPen controversy and defends the price hike, calling the healthcare system as a whole in this country broken. Here's my conversation with Heather Bresch. Heather Bresch, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's nice to sit down with you. I've, I've followed your career in the company for a long time, so thank you for being yeah. here. Well, thank you. You're a mom. You're the CEO of a huge pharmaceutical company. You are the first woman ever to run a big pharma company. You are listed very high up on Fortune's Most Powerful Women's List. And to make things interesting, you are the daughter of a sitting U.S. senator. <laughs> what is the best word to describe you today? Humbled. Humbled by all of those things. You know, I grew up in a, a small town in West Virginia. And if you would have said years ago, decades ago, that my father and I would find ourselves in the positions we are today, I would have said not in a million years. It, uh, so, you know, life has life's journey has a funny way of yeah. interconnecting and, and growing tree branches that you never thought were possible. And so, you know, as I said here today and listen to uh, the accomplishments at the top of the list being a mother, um, you know, like I said, that's the, probably the best feeling that comes over me. A mother of four. Yes. <laughs> we'll get into that juggle yeah. in, in a little bit. It is a juggle. Your first job uh, at Mylan long time ago, Mylan yeah. Pharmaceutical. 26 years ago. 26 years ago, was, was literally typing labels in the yes. basement. Was yes. l- that literally. Was literally, in <laughs> yes. the basement. Yes. In your wildest dreams? No. In my wildest dreams, no. It was my first real job out of college. Mylan was a kind of considered a startup company in, in West Virginia. It had started in 1961 in West Virginia. As it's been described by some publications, in a trailer. In a trailer, true, and the trailer was still there when I started. Mike Pushcart, one of the founders of the company, was still with the company when I joined in, in the beginning of 92. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I saw it as a, at best, a stepping stone, like for really? me to figure out what I wanted to do, because certainly pharmaceuticals had not been on my horizon. My family had been in public service. Yeah. I loved political science. I had interned in Washington, so I certainly did not see pharmaceuticals in my future. For people who who are listening and don't know Mylan, um, it's described by Fortune Magazine as a quirky outfit run out of a West Virginia trailer that turned into a global operator with 30,000 employees in 145 countries. And as you've said, one out of every 13 prescriptions dispensed in the U.S. is a Mylan product. As you rose at Mylan, you got out of the basement one day. I did. When did you realize I could lead this company? You know, I still can't go back and pinpoint a time where I said, oh, I could do this. Um, 
or, or that I saw myself as CEO. What I did realize over time is that I could do it. I mean, I realized after sitting in meetings and, and whether it was challenges presented or how are mm-hmm. we going to think about the next five years of the company's growth, that you know, the ideas I had, the work I had done, the research I was willing to you know, think about what was our best growth or what was the best way to, to overcome a, a challenge or something presented, you know, I realized that my ideas were just as good as really all of the men sitting around the table. And it was, you know, basically all men sitting around the table. Or maybe better because you became <laughs> CEO and they didn't. <laughs> well, you know, I certainly was given an opportunity yeah. that that door was open for me. And I think it takes two. You have to have doors open for you and then you have to be willing to walk through the door. And, you know, I think as I said here today, I that's probably the best advice I I still try to give women today. You've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, You've got to stand up and speak out and bring your perspective to the table. And if you're willing to do those things, that's certainly half the battle. Mm -hmm. We know that, you know, as you and I have talked about, um, work ethic and capability knows no gender, but opportunity does. And having someone open the door for you to allow you um, to stand up and speak out and lead is as important. As far as we could find, you are the only Fortune 500 CEO who is also the child of a current sitting U.S. Senator. <laughs> that complicates things. It is complicated. I would say this. It certainly, we are both held to a higher standard, and we should be. We should be. We're both in our uh, in our individual mm-hmm. roles. Mm-hmm. Um, we're role models. We're leading we're doing very important things, and um, but we're human. So, you know, I think sometimes we like to paint pictures of people in these positions as not really being human or able to make mistakes. And I think the important thing is how you handle challenges and those things that come your way. Uh, you know, my dad told me at a young age before he was ever uh, governor or senator, he said, you know, being a mansion will open doors for you and give you opportunities. Yeah. And if you want to take those, you better take the challenges right. they present as well. And I should note your father is uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, for people who don't know. <laughs> he also said to you, I read, because of those things, your skin better be thick. Yes. Did he give you, is he, is he the one who you learned to be tough from? You know, I can't give him all the credit. <laughs> the women in my family were tough. Uh, my great-grandmother came over on a boat from Italy. Um, my grandmother, the, the women in my family were the glue. They kept mm. it together. They fed friends and family alike. They, strangers on the street. I mean, our doors were open. And, you know, that really taught a compassion. And it really taught that, you know, you did need to, you needed to hold yourself to a higher standard. And I think I always felt that sense of we had a responsibility. We had a responsibility to help. But you also have talked a lot about Heather feeling often like the underdog. Yes. When, what did that come from? Well, again, I I, uh, grew up in this big ethnic Italian family. And, you know, as much as I was taught open mind, uh, open heart, I certainly was also taught that there were boy jobs and girl jobs. You were. You know, it was, it was, it was certainly written, spoke, actions, you know, the women cooked and cleaned and, mm-hmm. and we had many entrepreneurial family businesses that the, the men um, 
ran. It would have never it would have never been imagined that one of the girls in the family would have run one of the businesses and vice versa. One of the boys would cook or clean. And those were, you know, to run a small business. But then in 2012, <laughs> here you become the first woman ever to run a big pharma company. And yet this was something that in your family was not even uh, yeah. thought thought about possible breaking into what you've called an old boys club yeah. of the corporate sort of pharma world. I think at an early age, I was very, uh, I was curious. I was a bit frustrated by the fact that kind of if you won the gender lottery, that entitled you to something. People uh, listening to the podcast can't see your face right now, <laughs> but I think a bit frustrated is an understatement. Yeah. I, so I pushed back. I said, you know, I obviously there are many differences between boys and girls and things that one can do and the other can't. But when it comes to your mental agility, your ability to problem solve, your ability to figure things out, your ability to be able to lead, that to me was not, should not be predetermined by your gender. And, you know, I, I give my mom and dad both credit for allowing me to be comfortable in my own skin and kind of push these gender roles that our family had, you know, laid out. And, you know, that started young. I mean, my biggest... When you say, what did I want to do? I didn't want to work at a family business. I was like, I'll do anything but that. But that. (laughs) Is it true that you, uh, I read that you wanted to show your grandfather that you could sell more (laughs) cases of soda than the population of this West Virginia town. (laughs) And so you set out to prove to him you could do it and that that therefore a girl could do anything. Yeah. Well, I think he was so tired of me constantly pestering him to... Do, let me do something else. I would say, Papa, let me, I want to, I want to, you know, run the cash register. I want to, you know, do the big jobs, mm-hmm. not just bag ice and stock shelves. And so he says, Heather, I've got the job for you. I, really? I bought this, I bought some soda and uh, that's going to be your job this summer. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, that doesn't sound too insurmountable until a tractor trailer. And to put in context, Farmington had about 800 population, which is where, where my dad, my, my, grandparents and my dad grew up yeah and um this our our papa joe's grocery store was right in the middle of town this tractor trailer pulled up that was the size of farmington (laughs) and unloaded this soda in the parking lot because the store wasn't big enough and of course you know my grandfather being the good negotiator businessman he had he had gotten a deal and it didn't matter if he got a deal on the soda and so he is like, so here's your job. You're going to sell this soda every day. And I did. That was my summer job and sold every last case of soda. And you proved him. I, well, yeah, it was great, you know, to prove. It's, a, it's those challenges that I think instill confidence. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's important. You know, I think that confidence is gained or lost at a pretty young age. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think middle school, junior high, you know, those are important years um, that you need to really feel your own self-worth and value and mm-hmm. confidence in yourself because, you know, the world is cruel. Kids are cruel. Um, and, you know, it's it's not hard to find yourself feeling very lost or kind of in mass. When you began your career at Milan, you know, 26 years ago, you talk about you were so proud this wasn't a family business, right? But a man came up to you and said, oh, you must be a new secretary. 
Yes. What did that feel like? Well, first it was true, because mm -hmm. I, I had come in in this administrative job, and I was heartbroken, um, because the reality, while I was so excited about you know this opportunity, and um, it was such a wake-up call to me, like, wow, you know, he's right. Yeah. And uh, the fact that a stranger on the street would never assume I could be anything other than that right. um, was heartbreaking. And was it motivating to you, though? Very motivating. Kind of like, wow, all right, just like my grandfather in the soda pop. Uh, you know, I, and, and I want to believe that I certainly had within me that, you know, I, I felt no limit on myself. So I didn't, feel, I didn't feel that taking this job was demeaning. I looked at it as a rite of passage. I looked like you got to work your way up. I, I had no problem You should with have that. seen what I was doing in my first job. <laughs> yeah. First of all, my first job was at a gas station. But then when I broke into news, I was, all I was doing was running tapes from across the street from one tape library over to CBS News, transcribing them, running them back. I mean, you know, yeah. you, everyone starts you, somewhere. And you should. Yes. And I think that, you know, again, we've lost that. I think, you know, as great as a global economy is and that you could be working in Thailand for a company in San Francisco, mm -hmm. you know, out of your, you know, bedroom. But there's something to be said to, you know, I don't think there's very many people today that start on the ground floor, work their way up, stay with the company, and then have mm. the opportunity to be CEO. Well, your mom has spoken about your time rising up the ranks at Milan, and she says that you face blatant sexual harassment. Is it true? You know, it's, I hate to, I do not want to, um, I don't want to take away from those who have really suffered from, let's call it physical yeah. uh, sexual harassment. I've by no means ever experienced anything like that. But I absolutely experienced um, just being put in a corner, de demeaning aspects of it. You know, I'll give a for example. I was, uh, I was a single mother uh, early in my daughter's life when she was about four years old and pre-K, so kindergarten hadn't started yet. Right. And daycare didn't open until eight. And so there was a Monday morning meeting that started at eight. I had asked, I had asked the president at the time, I said, is there any way like we could start at 815? It's just nearly impossible. I can't, I can't the door's that. open yes. and I can't. I know all about that. No, Heather, no, we're not doing that. Like it doesn't, you just come in late. So every Monday morning, you had to come every day. <laughs> I had to be the only uh, woman in the room and I had to come in late. And, you know, I so just. So not only were you the only woman in the room. <laughs> Yes. You were coming in late. Yes, too. I was. And of course, you can imagine, it kind of was like dismissive because really their feeling was I didn't need to be there anyway. Jeez. Right. Because we're not going to move it for you. Right. Yeah. So again, you know, these are certainly scars and I'm certainly as a mom, you know, yeah. I don't, she may probably remembers it even differently than I do because I'm sure I yeah, came yeah, home yeah. invented. <laughs> um, and so, yes, there's no question that mm -hmm. there was an attitude. But, an environment. but somehow, despite that attitude, despite that environment, you had this strength, this inner strength in standing up to those who doubted your ability and believing I am good enough to do this and I will rise up. There's this anecdote about how when the new CEO of Milan was named, I think this is back in 2002, you know, CEOs come in, they bring their own people, right? So here you are, you have a pretty high up job by that point, marches into your office and tells you, you are the most overpaid executive here <laughs> and you should find another job. 
Right. That seriously happened? Seriously happened. <laughs> and way more animated than you just said it. Okay. I, this was the uh, PG version. Um, no, and, and he meant it. He, I, I will give uh, Robert Corey, who is the gentleman who came in as CEO in, in um, O2, he didn't uh, come in and wipe out all the old for the new. But what he did do was come in and try to understand. I mean, he was coming in behind a founder, which is difficult, mm-hmm. um, and wanting to really, you know, take Milan to that next level and, you know, put a lot more of institutional processes in place. And so I think he had, you know, it was kind of who's friends of the family. Sure. And Like, do so, you deserve to yeah, be here? Yeah, like, you're going to, he had predetermined that I didn't. Hmm. And of course, then that just infuriated me. <laughs> so what did it what did it make you do because you know it's been d- discussed how you even it emboldened you to to mm-hmm. work harder like doing a conference call just after your baby was born from the hospital. I, Which by the way I would do too. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean crazy. Here's what it did. It again, it's like these, you know, you have those little girl feelings come rushing back yeah. over you. I'm like, "You know what?" I had had in my mind, I'd already been at Milan over 10 years. Um, I ended up uh, having a great, you know, stint with working for Mike Pushkar, who was at the time CEO and founder. Um, And I had said to myself, you know, maybe it's time for me to do something new to broad, you know, go get a different experience. So I kind of in my own head had said, well, when Mike retires, that'll be my opportunity Mm. to do something else. So before that ever got out of my mouth, uh, Robert you know, situated me as I should go look for something else. Well, of course, then that just made me say, okay, well, I can change my timeline a little bit. Mm. I'll stay another six months and make him realize I'm the most undervalued employee. So then when I quit and do something else, he'll realize there's going to be a loss. Well, here I am Mm. 26 years later. So, yeah. Is it true that he said to you at, at one point or about you rather? You know what a woman can do for a home? That's what she's done for this corporation. He did, and I think he's regretted every minute since he said his heart was in the right place. Mm. You didn't, it didn't sit that well with you. <laughs> it did not. It did not sit well with me. I said, because you're enabling. The irony is he gave me this, you know, he kept giving me these challenges yeah. and opportunities, and he was really blinded to gender, race. I can say that um, as a leader, he's been the most equal opportunist. Um, so for him, hmm. he was really trying to be endearing. I said, well, it was, your word choice could have been much better because you're enabling what mm-hmm. so many, yeah. unfortunately, men do think that that's our place is to make something look pretty or to make, how about I could build the building? I could be the architect and plus design it and still decide what color carpet mm-hmm. the, the, it should be. And he certainly recognized, and like I said, you know, and I think it's those conversations. Yeah, I, I've words said, matter and how words we talk matter. about things. Words matter, and, and it's going to take. I say all the time, if every woman in a successful position helped another woman, we couldn't move the needle. There's mm-hmm. not enough of mm-hmm. us today. Mm-hmm. So we need, we need our fathers, our brothers, our sons mm-hmm. to, to see the world differently. And so I think these conversations, you know, me being able to walk in and being very pissed off that <laughs> that was how he described me is important because it makes, it makes men more aware that these things do matter. More from my conversation with Heather Bresch after the break.
You have talked about what you call the ambition gap, and you told Forbes more women at the top are needed to shrink the ambition gap. What do you mean? So, and I've done a lot of time thinking about this because when I came, when I was stepped up to CEO, I would do, you know, a lot of interviews as nor- it would be normal, you know, new CEO coming in or at least stepping up uh, in the company. And I would get this question, you know, how's your work-life balance? Non-existent, I just juggle. And I would look at them and say, do you ask this of my, there's 480 men in Fortune 500 CEO roles. And, you know, they kind of would get a blank stare. Women as well would be interviewing. And I think not even realize it was just like a natural. And again, I was like, Heather, you've got to come up with some better. I mean, I don't want, I'm not trying to be sarcastic or flippant about it, but I, again, was frustrated by sure. why aren't you talking to me about my capability or competency? Yep. Or, and um, so in thinking about this, I, I really sat back and think about girls kind of filter themselves out of what would be a traditional pathway to the C-suite. And what I mean by that is, you know, I use this example, and, and you'll see uh, soon enough with both a girl and a boy, the, mm-hmm. the differences in their personality. But you can have a little girl come home uh, taking a math test, seventh grader, and, and she does horribly and says, I'm terrible at math. And that kind of gets reinforced. Yes, you know what? Stick to what you're good at, English, history. A boy comes home, some seventh grade age, and flunks the math test and says, well, the teacher sucks. Mm. It's not internalized at all. It's someone else's fault. You know, his confidence isn't shaken. He doesn't think he's bad at math. And if you follow that along, you know, then the girl in high school is, Mm. you know, leaning into what she's comfortable in. She goes to college and gets a degree in what I'll say are typically support to if, if you are in a business environment, whether that's on the HR front or mm-hmm. legal front or finance front, or it, you're supporting the business. And so when you think about then what really leads to that C-suite is typically running the business, having P&L yep. ownership. And you just recognize that there are so few women that have put themselves in a position to even be considered. So, you know... Maybe ambition gap, as I think about, and I continue to evolve in trying to articulate what it's really this, either they don't see it or aren't mentored early enough to mm. think about it. And, and that's really something I really want to focus on and, you know, whatever years and the time I can give back to really having kids really be much more conscientious about, you know, where are your dreams? What are you passionate about? And, and kind of reverse engineer what would help you get there? And what are the kind of roles and the who are steps. the people you should talk to in the steps? Because, you know, I'm fortunate in a lot of respects, there was a lot of happenstance to my career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's hard. The world is a much, it gets more difficult by the day. It's, it's, it's difficult and I think rare every day to have happenstance take you where you want to go. You talk about the need for us women to push ourselves increasingly to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's so important? We're just wired differently. We want to be, I think women in general are, they're perfectionist. They're afraid of not being, they want to, we overcompensate, mm. you know, we overeducate ourselves. We overprepare. <laughs> um, yeah, I certainly do. 
And that's why I am where I am. I worked harder than anybody else in the room. I did more research. I spent weekends reading like the Orange Book, which was the you know Bible of the pharmaceutical company 20 years ago. I wanted to understand. And I could come to that table and have a, and you almost, I couldn't be ignored mm-hmm. <laughs> because but that's what we do. And so you sometimes limit yourself because you'll say, well, a role will become available. And you'll be like, well, I don't know that I check every right. single box. We know that studies show that women apply to, to those roles only if they have almost all of the qualifications and men apply to them when they have like half. Or none. Or none. They don't even, it doesn't matter. It's like yeah. they can. And, you know, the, that is where I, I, ta- I really believe that that's why it's going to take men as much as women to help see women mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, do I think that starts in the home at a young age? Absolutely. I, look, I think it does. My, um, you know, I got a, a picture. My husband texted me a picture during the show this morning of our garden, <laughs> which was my maternity leave project. <laughs> but now it's his project to take care of right. because he's on paternity leave right. and doing the equal amount of housework and taking equal care of our children f- allows me to have the career I have. Melinda Gates talks a lot about this. You were there when I was interviewing her at our American Opportunity Breakfast last year. And you say hearing from Melinda Gates about parental leave Mm -hmm. actually changed your policy. It did. At Milan. It inspired me. That conversation, you know, I sat back and I said, you know, I hadn't really gone back and thought about it. I mean, we have very generous benefits and and, and, uh, leave and everything, but I'm like, it really forced me to go back. And the first thing I realized when I, you know, I'm walking out of that lunch, texting my HR uh, lead said, can you, I want to see our policies. And and so maternity is classified as short-term disability. Right. And I thought to myself, well, of course it is. Having a child is disability in this country. And I know it stems and legal, but the reality is just putting that kind of wording wording on it so i mean i'm like okay this is crazy so we get around the table i'm like no it's parental leave is parental leave and yeah the mechanisms by how but i want to you know a lot of time that short-term disability isn't um fully paid leave so depending on your years of service and so Mm -hmm. forth so i wanted to make sure we you know the disability did not form as the basis of what you would be entitled to during your 12 weeks and is it for mothers and fathers it's for the primary caregiver so that can be a dad that can be a father can be a mother it can be adopted mm-hmm. you know adopted parents so you know it's just again it's sometimes little things or little tweaks little words that can make a difference so yeah we enhanced our policy and certainly changed the wording of it because she was absolutely right as a the just the labels we put on things Let's talk about some of the stands that you have taken as CEO leading this company, Uh, whether it's uh, takeover attempts that you do not want or uh, so-called inversions. Let's start there. So so 2015, you merged Mylan with a company in the Netherlands. Um, This is uh, known in in tax verbiage as an inversion, Mm -hmm. right? And so... This allowed Milan to pay a much lower uh, corporate tax rate than companies were paying at the time before the current tax reform. President Obama famously called it an unpatriotic loophole, referring to the practice in general. Why did you make the decision? Mm-hmm. Well, let me say this. First and foremost, it, it wasn't about tax. There was absolutely a competitive angle. We were the last in our industry to be headquartered out of the United States. And there absolutely were significant competitive disadvantages. I mean, there just were. And, uh, 
you know, we felt very strongly about keeping a large manufacturing base in the United States. We felt strongly about being able to continue to be competitive. And as I said at the time, we almost, what became, what became necessary was to leave the U.S. to grow in the U.S., if that makes sense. So do you have more employees in the U.S. today than you did then, before, before that? We have, yes, we do. We've grown in the U.S. since then. We've grown. We have um, about 12,000 mm-hmm. employees in the U.S. And, um, you know, it, it's been important from sales, from our manufacturing base. So at the, at, there was a competitive aspect to this. But it was the, really what drove the, the transaction, and we acquired Abbott's uh, established products business, was... Um, it was a it was an asset transaction out of Europe, and so that allowed the inversion. So really, the strategic fit of the company, and then the competitive dynamics here in the U.S. Um, is what drove us. And again, like I said, the irony was to grow, to grow in the U.S. We almost had to leave the U.S. You know that it was seen here as largely by many as largely about taxes, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean. In the middle of all of this, your dad, <laughs> Senator Joe Manchin, told reporters that the inversion should absolutely be repealed. And the headline in the National Journal was, Senator Joe Manchin, what my daughter did should be illegal. So, and he since changed his stance. But in that moment, Heather, <laughs> you can laugh about it now. Oh, yeah, I wasn't laughing. What was it like then? And oh. what did you do? Oh, what did I do? Well, he was lucky I was like uh, 10,000 miles away first. So the phone call, I couldn't, if, if I could convey what, what crossed uh, over those phone lines, because I, again, it was um, his words. I think, again, he wasn't coming from a bad place. He was coming from, obviously, he's the sitting senator for West Virginia. We're one of the largest corporations there. And he has a duty to say, I want to protect and make sure that we're doing everything we can for West Virginia. And I, you know, we had a very direct conversation about um, the problem is, Dad, these headlines, uh, you're doing what everybody else does. Hmm. You're, you're getting swept up in the headline and an emotion of it versus understanding substantively hmm. what is at hand. And if we didn't do this, what, unfortunately, West Virginia could look like without a myelin he, in it. He's- thought it would mean, what, a great number of job losses for West Virginia? Yes. He thought it could mean that, you know, an inversion would somehow mean we're not paying any more taxes in the United States, which is completely untrue. I mean, you're still but it did lo- it did lower But it did lower the corporate tax It lowered rate. the overall corporate tax, but you're still paying everything that we, we were still paying all the same taxes to our U.S., to, to what we were selling in the U.S. And, um, so it was not dissimilar to my conversation with Robert Corey after the words he used to describe me. It was pointing out that, you know, you need to go deeper. You are held to a higher standard. I reminded him what yeah. he would remind me. Yeah. You know, Dad, don't, you can't, don't get swept up in, you know, a headline or, you know, quite honestly, what reporters want to grab that story and run with it because that's a great sensational headline. And, you know, I think now, as you said, at not only did he take some time to understand it better, but he certainly now to see the world several years later to, to recognize that um, it was important because the reality is, had we not done that transaction, 
where you were going next was Teva's Teva. attempt at a hostile takeover. So, so, so let me explain this. There's a little known uh, rule in Dutch law <laughs> that allowed you to fend off a, a takeover bid from Teva Pharmaceutical that was at a 48% premium to where the, the share price was then, which a lot of your shareholders really wanted uh, Mylan to do. They'd get make a lot of money off of it. Of course. You said, Heather, no, we are a stakeholder company. Mm-hmm. We are not a shareholder company. And you said, we don't cater to Wall Street, and they don't like that. That was bold <laughs> for the head of a publicly traded company. Yeah. You know, look, that again, I don't know to blame this on my West Virginia roots <laughs> or having to speak my mind from a young age, but I, it's hard for me to let hypocrisy uh, stand. And, you know, uh, Wall Street performs an important function in, in the world. Uh, it's the, you know, the world revolves around cash and the flow of money, and I understand that. But I also understand that in order to trade value, you've, you've got to be, you're trading what someone else has built. And if we're not, a, if, if building great companies isn't what America is about anymore, I'm afraid we'll lose ourselves. Do you think we're at that point? Because you've talked about, you've said you cannot build a great company quarter by quarter. Well, look, every public company is in, in uh, a significant way dictated by quarterly earnings results and, and beating the street. And I think it's a huge mistake. I think that um, there, we have got to find better ways to... To, to measure ourselves and measure success, I, I, you can't build a company in a quarter. Tell me something you can do in a quarter. I, I don't know of anything. Can you imagine that as a mother, your child's life, it's like quarter by quarter mm. you're being and, and it could be taken away from you. If, but this is the environment you have to operate the company. That's right. So where, where I go back to having the opportunity to be a stakeholder company allows us to to take a lot of other things into consideration. I mean, Mylan shares fell pretty significantly in the weeks following that, mm-hmm. um, but you were steadfast in your belief. We believed that- it was, and, and not only did we believe it was the right thing to do then, but if I said here today, I think we were absolutely vindicated hmm. by that decision because Teva, we said that bringing, te- it's not that Mylan was adverse to combining with a company or yeah. it, we would do the right thing. But there was another deal you wanted. Combining those two companies were not the right thing to do. Teva then immediately pivoted and bought, you know, another very large pharmaceutical company. And, you know, sitting here today, I think that everything that we had said would happen if Mylan and Teva came together um, if Teva had been able to acquire us, has happened. I mean, they have, they're in, you know, if, again, if you would have told me 10 years ago, Mylan was at a, a $3 billion market cap and Teva was at a $40 billion mm-hmm. market cap. Mm. Today, Mylan's a $20 billion market cap and Teva was 19. So, you know, look, we've, I can tell you this, we're consistent. We do believe in the long term. I've said a well-run company delivers great shareholder returns, and we have, <laughs> and we plan to continue to do so. But we're we're afforded that opportunity because of our because of our structure. Let's talk about your most famous, uh, well-known product. <laughs> Probably the most wide. Well, I don't know if it's the most widely used of of your products, but EpiPen is mm-hmm. it? It certainly. I mean. 
we're the second largest filler of prescription drugs in the United yeah. States, so we have a lot of volume, but certainly the most well-known. So uh, it also was splashed across the headlines. Probably the greatest professional controversy you've dealt with, mm -hmm. right? For yes. the price increase back in 2016, the price for a two-pack increased from $100 in 2007 when Mylan acquired the maker to just over $600 in 2016. This is the list price. And there's a lot of stuff that complicates this with the middlemen, the pharmacy benefit managers. You testified before this in front of Congress. But for the average Joe, why did Mylan jack the price up? So first, just to, in context, it's, I do think, important, and, and I have, again, said this, that to understand the system, and it is a broken system, for sure, but the system of the fact that price increases for every product on the market, sitting here today, um, this year, thousands of companies, thousands of products, price being raised every year. It's the only industry that price goes up every year, whether you're on the market 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And um, there's a lot of reasoning for that. Taking those dollars, you're reinvesting them in the product itself. You're reinvesting them to bring other products to the market. There's a whole portfolio of reasons about why these price increases happen and what then that money goes to reinvestment. Mylan at the time, we had been we had invested over this decade that this price increases happened. We had invested about a billion dollars back into EpiPen, mm -hmm. into the awareness. I realized that people were very ill-prepared for an anaphylactic event, and in fact, were very ill-informed about anaphylaxis and that seconds matter and that you need this life-saving product. So we did brand awareness. We changed the product design. Um, you know, we did a lot of things. But, but when that moment hit and I'm, you know, that this $600 price tag and the flood of that anger, um, the rationale didn't matter. The, the reasoning didn't matter. They needed a solution and wanted a solution. And so before we did anything else, before I testified in Congress, before yep. I did anything, we came to the market with a generic and cut the price in half. From 600 to from 300. From 600 to 300. There was this memorable moment from your congressional testimony. Democratic Senator Elijah Cummings, here's what he said. I'm concerned that uh, this is a rope-a-dope strategy. After Milan takes our punches, they'll fly back to their mansions in their private jets and laugh all the way to the bank. No question you took issue with that. But what I'm interested in now, two years later, Heather, mm -hmm. how did that change you as a leader? In many ways. Um, in many ways. I mean, you know, I think, you know, personally you have defining moments. Companies as a CEO, there are defining moments. There is no question that was a defining moment. I realized that I was being swept up into a national dialogue that was needed, and I was being used as a point to illustrate a point. And I knew I needed to do one of two things about that. I could, I guess, go curl up in a corner, just say I'm sorry, and uh, lower, the, lower the price. I, I put a lower cost alternative on the market because I knew the patient at the pharmacy counter was who was hurting. But I wasn't going to be apologetic for operating in the system that existed. What I decided to do is put my effort and energy to do a lot of homework and talk about what needed to be fixed and how broken the system was right. and how much 
um, it wasn't working for patients. And you have said EpiPen needed to be a catalyst to show the drug system is broken. So it's sort of... Well, I said if it... if. I had to. If, if you it, had if, to. If it needed to be the catalyst, there you go. then what needed to happen was it needed. But the president today is talking about changes to try to bring prescription drug costs down. And administrations have talked about this for a long time. And I just wonder if you think, you say the system is broken, there's all these players. Gosh, I mean, what is, A, what is the number one thing that could be done to change it to bring prices down for American families? Mm-hmm. And B, is Congress helping? Unfortunately, here's what I'll say about Congress. They're not very solution oriented. Hmm. I mean, I've never seen a time in our country that were less that was less solution oriented where it's too partisan. It's everyone, you know, grabbing the headline. Um, you talk about corporations running quarterly. I mean, politicians are running by the minute. Hmm. It's what grabs a headline. You know, thinking about th- these are hard, hard challenges to tackle. The- this is something our healthcare and the pharmaceutical industry has evolved over the last 30, 40 years. So these these are hard problems to fix. You can't fix this in a 10 second soundbite. Um, this is going to take real work. Uh, I absolutely had optimism for this administration because I thought they were disruptive. Right, I you have they said. Would- the, the Trump administration could be an ally absolutely in could. this sort of fixing the broken health care system in, in terms of cost. But how do you feel today? You know, we'll see. I have hope that they are going to announce some things that will sound familiar to things that I've been saying for okay. the last couple of years. And I would say, have you know, they come to you? Have you gone to the I've White absolutely House? met with the administration uh, throughout several different players within the administration. The president? Different not with the president on health care. Um, but I have met with him. I have certainly uh, shared research that I had done. I would shared where I thought we could bring transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, it is complicated. I mean, President Trump said it's complicated, and it is. Health care is beyond complicated. And we've overcomplicated it as a country. And so it's there's no... There's no magic bullet to fix it. Let me ask you this, um, because I think I think part of what is hard for so many uh, in the American public to stomach is that this has to do with drugs and life-saving drugs, yes. as in EpiPen, right? Yes. So this is different than a lot of other businesses, right. right? And you've said, I'm running a business, I'm a for-profit business, and I'm not hiding for that. But tell me, Heather, how you as a leader walk the line between being accountable to your shareholders in a system that you don't like to operate in, that you have to operate in, but then also for something that is a life-saving drug like EpiPen or insert any other one of these drugs in there. You know, how do you walk the line? When is it, is it ever okay to price people out? How do you, how do you deal with that hurdle? Yeah, it's never okay to price people out. Let me start there. And I certainly feel the weight of running a pharmaceutical company, a global healthcare company, um, more than I ever thought imaginable, I carry that weight. Mylan at its core has been, we were founded on being a generic pharmaceutical company. In the United States, we talk about Mylan being the second largest filler of pharmaceutical products. In the United States, we make over 650 products, we sell over 650 products for less than 30 cents a dose. So get your head around that. Less than 30 cents a dose is what, and that includes EpiPen. So when you look at the broad nature of the portfolio and the fact that we are delivering the lowest cost, high quality 
medicine that in many cases and in many places in the world are the only medicine available because many of the brand companies don't even sell their products in the developing world because they don't have patent protection or their or the pricing they're not going to make the margins on it we made a conscious effort that not only were we going to serve the united states but over a decade ago we embarked upon wanting to make sure all seven billion people had access to affordable medicine so I'm the largest uh, provider of HIV medications. Over 40% of every HIV patient has taken a myelin product. We have innovated to make products uh, heat stable for places like Sub-Saharan Africa and refrigeration isn't available. We make products and, and are making sure they're reaching the ends of the earth that aren't necessarily as profitable as the developed countries. Something that you've You've partnered so, on a lot of this with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Absolutely. And uh, so I think about all of this. Okay. And how do you balance making sure that we are reaching and making accessible? So when the EpiPen crisis happened, yeah, you know what? The biggest wake-up call it was for me was how much healthcare was not working for patients in the United States. And that's what I was determined to set out and try to help make a difference because I can sit here and tell you that behind the scenes there's all this big business happening. Mm -hmm. As a mom, as a parent, when you walk up to that counter, you have no idea what something's going to cost. It's the only thing you buy in your life with no price tag with on no it price until tag you on get it, the until they hand you a bill, and it's the only time that you're going to be denied that product because at least if you're checked into the ER room. You're going to have to deal with probably a lot of bills well, after the fact, but you get you at least get taken care of. But they I, don't turn you away. I, exactly, that's but true. But at the pharmacy counter, but you even get those bills away. are so hard to understand. I couldn't understand totally. half of the bills I got after the you know our children Completely. were born. Before we move on to how the new FDA commissioner is changing things, mm -hmm. because it, that's really fascinating. I think um, d just you know for. For many in the American public, they see this as a for-profit industry gone wild, and they look at CEO salaries. And through the EpiPen controversy, your salary was written about a lot, rising from two and a half million in 2007 to 19 million that year in 2016. What do you say to people, to critics? You know, let me start with this: the time frame they used. I wasn't CEO, so you can come. You know, you can take a lot of moments in time, and I think you know get facts and slice facts however you want to. The reality is uh, I sat in the middle of my peers, if not even less. So as you just mentioned, I'm the only woman, had been the only woman out there. So, you know, I would hope that America would want competitiveness and want a woman CEO to be uh, treated like a male CEO, my counterparts. Um, but again, I don't take lightly the responsibility. And again, as I said, I'm, I'm humbled to do what I do. but. It is, uh, it's, a, it's an important role, and I think as we think about compensation and, uh, and making sure that, that people are, again, I'm gonna go back, I can't, I can't recreate or uh, set different milestones or, or uh, measuring sticks. What I can do is make sure that I think that I'm doing everything I can for Milan, that my shareholders, that my board feel, and you know they're responsible for making those decisions. And all I can do is know that I'm giving 
everything I can to do this job the best way I know how. One thing that I that I wanted to ask about your experience in the last two years and going through that testimony in front of Congress about the EpiPen price increase. Eventually, you guys went on to settle this uh, settle with the, the Department of Health and Human Services. They said that taxpayers were overcharged. $465 million settlement. You dealt with headlines like the New York Times saying, painted as an EpiPen villain, Milan's chief says she is no such thing. How, Heather, through that settlement, through those headlines, do you think it has made you a stronger leader? And do you think it has changed what inevitably will be whatever the next toughest moment is for you? Well, like, I guess I'm asking, would you, would you have preferred not to go through it or in hindsight, are you glad you had to experience that and deal with it? Look, there, there's no question it strengthened me. And uh, I'm not one to look back and say, you know, I, I wish that would have never happened. I mean, things happen for a reason. I believe that. I believe uh, that it's the learnings you take out of them. And as I've said to you today, I took a lot of learnings out of it. Uh, most importantly, the patients we serve and that I'm responsible for how to, how to uh, try to help fix this broader system. And uh, had I not gone through that experience, I don't know that I would have been as, I mean, I'm pretty passionate to begin with about some of these issues, but it certainly um, fueled a fire that I couldn't rest. And, and I hope that a lot of what the president says today goes to some of these points I raised two years ago. And yes, I will feel, I'll be proud if, if one conversation or one piece of research I did helped lead to bringing some transparency and, and relief to patients who need it. So the reason I ask that is because I keep thinking about, now there's a new commissioner, a relatively new commissioner of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, and things seem to be changing, Heather, and moving a lot faster. I was speaking with Sanjay Gupta, our chief you know, medical correspondent, also a surgeon about this, and just talking about how it seems to be accelerating the approval process, and I wonder what you think, I mean, it's, are things changing for the better, do you believe, for the industry as a whole and for the American public as a whole? Mm -hmm. There's no question Dr. Dr. Gottlieb understands this, this system. Right. He's been in it a long time, uh, you know, from his previous years at FDA and then, yeah, yeah. and then being outside of the agency and coming back. And so the fact his knowledge base is at such a different level because, you know, it's not just coming from one perspective, the medical perspective or the science perspective. He really has a holistic picture. So I think his commentary, both on um, generic approvals, complex products, biosimilars, you know, Mylan has one of the largest pipelines of complex products in the industry. I have the largest backlog at the FDA, so there's nobody that wants a more effective or efficient FDA than I do. But with that being said, just approving the fourth or fifth generic on the market is not going to change your experience at the pharmacy counter. So what Dr. Gottlieb also appreciates is that fact. So when you hear him talk about the role of the middlemen, and I think he's been very bold uh, and accurate mm -hmm. about saying, We've really got to look at this difference because the, we have the consolidation, you know, of the buying power in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean, I basically in the U.S. have three customers. I mean, so think about that. There's three buying groups that are buying 90% of all medications for the country. I mean, that's putting a lot of power consolidated into very few hands. And, you know, I think that Dr. Gottlieb appreciates that 
the, the leverage of that power, as well as some of the roles with formularies and how how you are determined, depending on what insurance policy you have, what it's determined you're allowed to take. And that can be very, it can disincentivize the investments that need to be made to bring expensive, affordable options. You know, to bring a biosimilar to the product to the market is extremely expensive. I mean, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to bring one product to the market. Do you think that on that point, uh, before we move on, that you know, right now you need these to get approval, these long-term double-blinded studies, right? And as, as to protect the, the public, right? Um, but what about the role of big data, Heather? Have you thought about how big data, which is getting better and better, better at knowing more and more and more and how that can be implemented and how that may change? Do you think it's going to shorten the timeline for these approval processes? Do you think it's going to change things significantly? There's no question that real life experience that big data is able to capture is going to help educate us and inform us. And, you know, just as a side note, because that makes me think, you know, you've talked a lot about gender equality. We spent a lot of today talking about that. You know, that extends into medicine. It's only been within the last couple of decades that we even test women. We never even did clinical is that trials. true? Yes, because we were afraid that, you know, well... Don't hurt the mother. Childbearing years, you know, it would be... But what we missed in all of that is that, you know, guess what? Our bodies operate and function pretty differently. I did not know. 80% more women are affected by immunological diseases, and we don't know why. So when, you, when we talk about, will life experience and big data, I hope so. We've got a long way to go. And obviously, there's been a lot of, you know, advancement in these last couple of decades. But that should tell you, in a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time, what we've learned, but how much more, like for instance, we know that a woman's signs of a heart attack are very different than a man's. But we only know that now because we're a, we've opened up and we're getting real life experience as well as opening up how we're looking at clinical trials. The other thing I would say to help shorten is harmonization. I mean, you know, again, we're a global economy. Um, we're a global society. And for the FDA to figure out how to partner with some of the other regulatory bodies around the world so that we're not constantly duplicating efforts. So if standards can be set and that there's ways to be sharing data and sharing clinical data and sharing information that's acceptable, um, it'll go a long ways to not only shorten time horizons here, but making, allowing the opportunity to reach you know, much more of the world's population in a, in a faster, more effective way. You talked at the beginning of this about public service being the, you know, the daughter of a politician. You say it fueled a fire that could not rest. Politicians can help change the system, Heather. Would you ever run? <laughs> no. Never? I know. Everyone says never say never. Well, if it's going to take, I mean, you can, you can talk about the system being broken and you can present solutions, but it's going to be the lawmakers that get them implemented, yeah. right? Let me say this. I can't imagine running. Okay. I think I have a lot, a lot left in me to make a difference in this world. And I think I can do that um, without running for public office. Um, but I care about making a difference. And uh, I get up every day figuring out how I can make, how I can have more impact mm-hmm. from our employees to our shareholders to patients and just the delivery of health care. 
Is there is there an, a lot of CEOs um, give me a similar answer because they have such an aversion to how partisan Washington has become, and they feel like they can affect more change in the corner office than in D.C. right now. Do you share that? I do. I think there is so much lost. Not only is it partisan, but I guess I've gotten to see it firsthand, uh, being, you know, having very personal, close proximity to, to politicians. It's so distracting. It's not even, I think, you know, you're kind of built for a good debate, a good challenge, uh, a fight, uh, to stand up for what you believe in. I mean, all of those things that yeah. many of us have inside. But when none of that is even really what you're spending your time doing, you're spending your time on all of kind of the fringe. And I feel that it's the fringe that is driving the narrative. It's the fringe driving, um, like I said, our priorities uh, or the, you know, Washington's priorities. And, you know, that that needs to be shook up. We need to be reminded that we're Americans and that we we are held to a higher standard. This country needs to be held to a higher standard as a world power and to maintain that. Um, we've got to we've got to work. <laughs> we've got to work together to make that happen. No one individual can implement any kind of change. Period. That's true. How has West Virginia shaped you and changed you. you. We started talking about being born, you know, in your family coming from this small town of 800 in West Virginia, uh, a tiny coal mining town, I believe. You're deeply tied to the state. You have a lot of employees in the state, a million square foot facility there, 3,000 workers. How has having West Virginia in your blood shaped Heather Bresch? <laughs> I think in every way imaginable. Um, I think we are uh, resilient. We're a resilient group. Mm -hmm. I think that we're sturdy. We're tough. Um, you know, we've we've gone through many generations of you know despair coming back. You know, from the coal mining industry. I mean, back in its heyday, I think West Virginia had more millionaires per square foot than any other state in the country. So when you go from there to seeing what our state's facing today, it's you can't sit still. That's what I can say. So I'm, I'm all about giving hope to the children in West Virginia and, and doing everything I possibly can to make sure they're exposed um, to see, a, to see a, a world and a life that they may not know coming, being raised in Southern West Virginia and from an empty coal mining field that's been left and abandoned and with the opioid epidemic. I mean, all of those are systematic of a root cause of hopelessness. Can I just get you on that? And I know we're out of time, and, but I care <laughs> deeply, and so many Americans care so deeply about yes. the opioid epidemic. Yes. And coming from a big pharma background mm -hmm. um, and, a, and a, being a daughter of West Virginia and mm -hmm. seeing the pain uh, that so many Americans are struggling with and the lives lost. Yes. Um, it's horrific. It is a it's a tragedy, and you know, unfortunately, good or bad, our country is more reactive than proactive. And I think we're now finding ourselves reacting to this tragedy, where there were certainly signs of it for the for the last long time, last decade. Mm -hmm. um, but we are at this moment in time that I think has caught national attention. Thankfully, I think that you know, and again. We're good, I say this, we're good at sick care. We're not so good at health care. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're good at taking care of you um, when you're, when you're <laughs> sick. We don't do a great job of keeping you healthy. 
And, you know, I, I think the opioid is, uh, is, a, is a symptom of, like I said, a country in despair. I mean, West Virginia's problems and challenges aren't unique only to West Virginia. We have our share as our little state. But you see, you know, families um, that haven't been able to be retrained or gain unemployment. I mean, I think the reality is every human being wants to be productive and be able to take care of themselves and their family. And when you can't do that, um, you and and you keep digging a deeper hole from yourself, you know, that's when hopelessness sets in. And so, you know, we've, as a country, we have an opportunity right now to step up and, and have that hand being, giving people a second opportunity. You know what's more heartbreaking for me? Not only to see someone who's been afflicted by addiction, they've recovered. Now they can't get employed because no one will hire them because they had this problem. These are the things that now, you know, I I hope that there's many out there listening and watching that have the opportunity to step back and say, could we have a second chance policy? What can I do? What can I do? And what can I do to help make sure that we're giving people opportunity because I think with hope comes restoring of that, everything else that comes with it. So finally, finish the sentence for me. I will have succeeded when? I will have succeeded when I feel that I have done everything I can possibly do to, to impact how healthcare is delivered around the world. And in doing that, also how my children are healthy and productive citizens of this beautiful world we live in. Whether that's as a CEO or in Washington. Whatever. Heather Rush, thank you for all the time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.